This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Uh, hey, y'all. Uh, for those of you who I haven't met yet, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm John Charbock. Um, uh, as uh, Charlie mentioned, um, my wife and I go to Providence Church, is the church here in town, down near campus, uh, and I get to preach here occasionally, and it's, it's always a great honor to get to open up God's Word together with y'all, and um, today is no exception. So we're in the book of uh, Mark still, and um, you know, for those of you maybe who haven't been coming for a while, we're sort of nearing the end of the book of Mark, um, which is, and, and Mark's account specifically of Jesus' earthly ministry. And um, where we are in the book right now is he's, he's, we're, uh, he's come into Jerusalem in his final week, came into Jerusalem um, on Sunday, and then uh, by Friday he's going to be arrested, tried, convicted, crucified, and buried. So a very short period of time, only a few days uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, this is the account, today we're going to study the account of his conviction meaning his, his formal rejection by the people that he came to save. Um, and so let's just, let's just take a moment to actually read the passage. It's Mark 15, starting in verse 1. Um, Mark 15, starting in verse 1. Okay. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him with a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him away, they stripped him of his purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Um, uh, let's start with a prayer. Lord, thank you for today, the day that you've made, and uh, for your word, and for the chance to gather together and uh, to worship you in freedom, and uh, we hope you would open your uh, word to us, that you would help us to see clearly the glory of your son Christ in it, um, that you would soften our hearts to be receptive to it, that you would make us doers of the word, not hearers only, uh, and that uh, in all these things that you would glorify yourself. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. 
Um, so as we, if, when we read a passage like this where it's like you've got all these bad characters kind of mistreating Jesus, I think it's very easy for us to naturally identify with our Lord, right? That kind of makes sense. And then be like, I would never, you know, these, look at, these, look at these, these villains, you know, and kind of, I would never behave like that. Um, but I think that the reality is that as it's, it's, it's we meditate further on the passage, that oftentimes the scriptures will reflect back to us um, what we, who we really are and what we're really like. And it's a good axiom that whenever you read a passage and you see the bad people, that's actually telling us something about ourselves. Um, that we're usually the bad people in the story and we're not the heroes. Um, and that's, I think that's very true here. And so the, I think the big idea of this passage, and we'll talk about this, is that uh, the Son of God died as a rebel so that rebels can become sons of God. That's the big idea. The Son of God died as a rebel so that rebels can become sons of God. But that idea is going gonna, is gonna to play out across five portraits. And there's going to be four portraits of rebellion. Like, what does it mean to be a rebel? What does it look like to be a rebel? Four different ways of rejecting God. And then one portrait of supreme obedience, the supreme love of Jesus, uh, not just for the righteous, but also for the rebel. And so we're, let's, just, let's just work through these four portraits. And, and the first portrait is, uh, is of the leaders. And so the, the leaders here are a portrait in cunning. Meaning, they don't have the power to execute Jesus, so they manipulate the situation to get Pilate to do it for them. So they don't have the power to execute Jesus. And the reason they don't have the power to execute Jesus is that uh, the, the Roman state had the practice, and they would go through and they would set up puppet governments. Um, and, uh, and these puppet governments would rely upon collaborators. And collaborators are basically like locals who cooperate with the enemy government, um, traitors basically. And, you know, they, they were protected by Rome, but there's a really easy way around that. So you, what you would do is you would charge the collaborator with some trumped up charge, you'd try them, and then you'd, you'd execute them. Oh, yeah, he's a murderer. We have to execute him. And so Rome's solution to this was to say, okay, you know what? No executions for you. Uh, we'll be the one in charge of deciding who gets executed and who doesn't. And so that means that the chief priests actually lack the legal authority they need to execute Jesus. The law says that Jesus should be put to death in their minds, but um, they don't have the power to do that. Meaning only Pilate can do that, and they can't. And so the, the, instead, what they decide to do is they, they have to get Pilate to do it for them. Okay, so let's look at, just look at verse 1. As soon as it was the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. Um, so just starting it off, uh, for context, back in Mark 14, they've done, a, they've done like a uh, religious trial the night before. Yeah, but you're not allowed to have trials at night, you know, in, in ancient, uh, in, in first century Palestine, as, as also in 21st century America. So they have to ratify that decision in the morning. Right? You have to have the trial in the light of day or it's all above board. And so they make the decision the night before, they ratify it with the whole council uh, in the morning. And, uh, then, and then they, they, uh, uh, the, they bound Jesus, having made their decision, they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. So, okay, so now they gotta, okay, they've got the formal religious conviction, now they gotta figure out how to kill him. So they take him to Pilate, and I think the insinuation here is that they're saying, hey, he's a rebel. He's claiming to be the king of the Jews. I mean, we only got one king, the king is Caesar, so this guy must be leading an insurrection. Uh, 
and, and then they're also throwing a bunch of other accusations at him. Okay, just for anything that'll stick. And, you know, and, and, and so they're kind of throwing the whole kitchen sink at him. And what's remarkable is that Jesus doesn't really dispute it. He doesn't really aff- affirm it either. He says, you have said so, which is a deliberately sort of ambiguous um, response. And then he makes no real uh, answer. Right? But the chief priests in this process, they never really stop to worry. They're just throwing the kitchen sink down. They're like, okay, we've got to get something to stick. And they never really stop to wonder, like, okay, well, hold on. They don't worry that the testimony against Jesus doesn't agree. Right? The law says you have to have, you know, to put someone to death, you've got to get two or three witnesses together, they all have to agree. The testimony here does not agree. They don't worry that this guy's been doing great signs and, and, and wonders, and so maybe he really is who he claims to be. Um, and the question is, why, why don't they? Why, why do they never really ask themselves, is he really the king of the Jews? Is he really our king? Um, and the answer, of course, is in verse 10, um, which says that the chief priests had delivered him up out of envy. So uh, on the one hand, there's this like deep base motivation of we're envious of this guy. He's drawing people away from us. He's a religious, uh, he's a religious superstar. But, um, you know, the heart is, the scriptures say the heart is deceitful above all things. And so oftentimes we'll have a base motivation of what's really driving us. And then we'll kind of dress it up in a nice rationale or justification or reason. And the, the, the justification actually we see, it, and you don't have to turn there, I think it'll be on the screen, but uh, you can also hear me read it, is in John chapter 11, verses 47 and following. And it says, so, uh, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. This is them plotting Jesus' demise. And they said, what are we to do? For this man, Jesus, performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place, which is a word, uh, actually, it's not like, it's like not their position, but more like the temple. Like they're going to take away the religious center of life in Israel and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Okay, so it's a very calculating, cunning political move they're making here. They're saying, okay, here's what's going to happen. This Jesus guy's going to keep talking. He's going to keep doing signs. People are going to start going after him. And you know what's going to happen? The Romans are going to come in and start killing people. Right? We've got we to stop that from happening. We've got to keep the peace. We've got to keep people from going after him. Uh, otherwise, they're going to destroy the temple like they've done in the past, and they actually will do in the future um, with the next big messianic movement that happens. Uh, and and we, don't, we don't want that. So they, these are good goals, like protecting the religious life of Israel is a good goal. Preventing the Romans from coming in and destroying the nation. These are good goals. But the problem is that they're so single-minded in their pursuit of these good goals that they're willing to do anything to achieve them, even if that means sacrificing Jesus. And so to them, the end of this good thing justifies the means. And, and they are willing to do evil because they think good will result. Or they're willing to disobey the law of God because they think that they have a better plan for how things should play out than, than God does in the long run. And so they're not trusting in the Lord. They're trusting in their own political cunning, their ability to manipulate the situation to produce the outcomes that they think are Right. And so we should see ourselves in these leaders, I think, because, you know, oftentimes we'll have some good goal that we want to achieve. We want, maybe it's personal, maybe it's something like marriage and family. Uh, maybe it's 
um, political, like fixing suffering or injustice or protecting religious freedoms or maybe it's the religious, vindicating God's truth in a hostile world. Okay, okay great. These are all good goals uh, that we should be m- moving towards, um, but then we don't trust God's plan to achieve those goals, right? God's plan is basically just outlove everybody else until we win, right? So exercise temperance and self-control, love your enemies, self-sacrifice, uh, patience and forgiveness, and above all, humility, right? That's God's plan. And to us, that kind of sounds crazy. Like, okay, if I just, just out love, that's going to walk all over me, doormat, whatever. And so we end up taking matters into our own hands, right? And we do something that we shouldn't do. Maybe we chase after the relationship we shouldn't be in. Or we, we try, decided we're going to fight the good fight uh, by, by being hateful towards other people. Or we decide we're going to get results by abusing power and our authority. Or maybe we defend the truth by just bullying people and being nasty about it um, and manipulating people. And all these things are, you know, these are good goals, but the way we bring them about is a form of rebellion. It's, a, it's a, basically a way of saying, hey, I, I know better than you, God. I don't need to follow your plan. I'll follow my own plan and we'll get better results that way. We're, we're, we're playing God in that situation by saying, I know better than you, and things will turn out better my way than your way, God. Um, and, and, and in doing these things, we're making ourselves out to be God. And making ourselves out to be God, we're rejecting the one true God. Right? So that's what a rebellion might look like in our lives. Um, but the truth is that God doesn't need us and our little plans and designs to accomplish his purposes. That God is in control. Right? God can bring about his purposes through evil. He can bring about his purposes through good. All that we know for sure, we don't know the plan, we don't know the, we don't know the, the, the beats that it'll take, but we do know that it's going to happen and that God will bring about his good purposes for good. He doesn't need our evil to make it happen. So we can just do what's right. We can do the right thing and then trust God with the result. We don't have to play God. We can let God be God. So that's, that's the first portrait, this portrait in cunning. If I'm going to manipulate the situation and maybe do a little evil, but it's for a greater good, you know, guys? Um, this, the second portrait is Pilate. And Pilate is basically a portrait in cowardice. Okay? And there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, ink over, oh, is Pilate a, is, Pilate a, is, is this about, like, the, the religious leaders are bad. No, like they're all bad, okay? And, and Pilate's a portrait in cowardice. He knows that Jesus is special. He knows there's something remarkable about this guy. And moreover, he seems to know that he's innocent, but he goes along with what's happening out of fear. Okay, so he knows Jesus is special. He knows Jesus is innocent. Let's start there. Um, the, the, you know, okay, so in, uh, in, there's an axiom of criminal law, which is that if you are guilt, if, if you are charged with a crime, just don't talk. Okay, don't talk to the police. Don't testify in your own defense. Stay off the stand. Just don't talk. Okay, there's your legal advice for the day. Uh, and but here's what actually happens: everyone feels the need to vindicate themselves and plead their case and um, show why they're right. And so they 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 start talking and whatever. And that's always when you get into trouble. Okay, and. Uh, so that's our natural impulse. Our natural impulse is to plead our own case. And what's remarkable here, and we'll see this in verse 4, Pilate asked him again, said, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they make against you? But Jesus had no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. What's remarkable about Jesus in Pilate's eyes is that he's not pleading his case. He's not begging for mercy. He's like, yeah, okay. They, yeah, you, th- you say I'm the, the king of the Jews, and that's all I really got to say about this. 
uh, situation. And it, it, it leaves the impression in Pilate's mind that he, this guy's amazing, which just means like he's remarkable. There's something remarkable about what's going on here. Um, and, 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 and John, John's account of this, tells us that this interaction, like this short little brief interaction, leaves Pilate very unsettled and afraid. Like, maybe this guy really is who he claims to be. Maybe he really is the son of God. And moreover, in Matthew, we actually learn that Pilate's wife sends him a note during this, saying, hey, I had a dream about this guy, Jesus, and you should have nothing to do with this righteous man. Like, don't, don't mess with this situation. Stay out of it. Um, and and even, in, even in Mark 10, I mean, even in Mark 15, verse 10, it says that Pilate perceives that they're delivering him over to him out of envy. He knows that the chief priests are just do, manipulating the situation because they don't like Jesus, okay? So he knows, he knows something's not right here. He knows this guy is remarkable. He seems to have a strong intuition that he's innocent. Um, and, and he's like, yeah, but, he, but, he, but he's not willing to do anything about it. Meaning he goes along with what's happening out of fear. Um, so for context, Pilate is the governor of uh, the province of Judea, and he's been appointed by a guy named Sejanus, who's responsible for the day-to-day administration of the empire at the time. Um, he's a very powerful guy, probably the second most powerful person in the, in the empire, right behind the emperor. And so Pilate probably felt very safe and secure um, in, 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 in his job. And he's also made a habit, because he has a very powerful patron, but he also made a habit of antagonizing the people of Judea. Um, and we, we see accounts of this in the scriptures. Uh, he's not a nice dude. He's not trying to make friends. Um, and Pilate has one problem, which is that maybe a year or so earlier, the emperor caught wind that Sejanus was plotting against him. And so the emperor had Sejanus executed. And so now Pilate's out on a limb. He's lost his big patron, right? He's been antagonizing the people he's supposed to keep in line. And he's exposed. He's weak politically. And I think the, the leaders probably know this. They probably know that he's on thin ice. And he knows this, which is why he's in Jerusalem in the first place. That's not where his, he's, he's up in Caesarea Philippi, which is on the coast. It's nice, it's beautiful. It's like he's living in a coastal villa. And now he has to go down to the Jerusalem, which is hot and it's crowded with people because of the Passover. It's not a place you want to be, but he's there because he knows he needs to keep a lid on things. And the leaders know that too. They know that he's weak and they can manipulate this situation. So they pressure him. And we see in John chapter 19 that they basically say, hey, if you release this man, Jesus, then you're no friend of Caesar. Right? Pilate's very desperate to prove that he is in fact a friend of Caesar because remember his patron has just been executed for not being a friend of Caesar. Um, and in and, 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 and Matthew, it was, he sees that a riot is starting even. And so he just gives in. He's like, okay, I don't want a riot. I want to keep my position and keep my place. And, and, um, and so he makes this very short-sighted decision, a short-sighted decision to, cr- to allow, to order the crucifixion of Jesus. And I say it's short-sighted because it doesn't actually buy him much time. Only a few years later, Pilate's antics of antagonizing the people of, of Judea and Samaria is going to catch up with him. He's going to get called home. And he's going to die shortly after that. So he's going to be removed from office and die. Um, and so he, basically he's, 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 he's made a short-sighted decision to choose a few more years of political power and status uh, in, in exchange for... Um, in, in, in exchange for, uh, instead of doing what's right and judging justly. And the great irony of this for Pilate is that on the, on the last day, Pilate is going to be called before the Lord Jesus, the, the man whom he judged, and, he's, uh, and the man who, whom he condemned to death, and be called to account by him, right? And, and the Lord Jesus is not cowardly. The Lord Jesus is not faithless. 
the Lord Jesus is not dishonest like Pilate. The Lord Jesus is called faithful and true, and uh, he's the one who judges justly, and he judges without error. And so I think we should see ourselves in Pilate as well, and that sort of short-sighted decision-making of, um, you know, problems, Pilate's basic problem is that he's worldly. And worldly just means that you focus your hope on this life only. That, you, you know, this life is what there is, and that's where our, our hope is focused. Um, it's on things like status, or position, or wealth. It's all the things that we've accomplished in the world, worldly. And I think we basically do the same thing that Pilate does. And it's, it takes a different form, but it's the same basic contours, that we put our hope in things like careers. We put our hope in things like relationships, family and children, in wealth and in status. And, you know, these are all good. I mean, some of these are good things. Some of them are less good. But, but these are all, you know, gifts of God. And we tell ourselves, right, this is the lie we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves that these things are secondary, right? Oh, yeah, these are good gifts from the Lord. Family's a good gift from the Lord. My, my wealth is a good gift from the Lord. And, you know, God is number one in my heart, and I'm going to enjoy his good gifts that he's given us. And great. That is the theologically correct answer, okay? And if that's really what we were doing, that'd be a-okay, right? But here's what actually happens. I, I, it, at least in my experience, those things start to insinuate or worm their ways into your heart. And they begin to push God out, right? And we don't realize that it's happening, but we fall in love with our, our status and our money and our relationships and all these things, and we make them out to be our new our new gods, because these things really are satisfying, and they really do bring a sort of joy, at least in the short term. And we don't realize it, but eventually they just displace God in our hearts, and it becomes our, our and our God becomes making money or accomplishing things or our children or our family or whatever it is. And when we're called to choose between the good gifts that God has given us and the Giver Himself, oftentimes it's a much harder choice than we realize. And I think that, you know, there's a saying, you tar the roof when the sun is shining, right? So the sun is shining right now. It's pretty easy still, relatively speaking, to be a Christian in America. And, but the scriptures say that's probably not going to be the case forever. And, you know, it's going to, we're going to be, there's going to be hard choices that we have to make. And, you know, we start thinking about these things, start thinking about these things now. Um, and uh, we don't want to give up these good gifts. And that's, that's what we're going to discover, I think. And, and here's a little thought experiment. Maybe it'll be helpful, maybe not. But, you know, just imagine that you, I, I offered you everything you ever wanted. So, like a billion dollars, like an absurd amount of money, Elon Musk money, and I give you a wonderful spouse and a happy and healthy family and loving friends and, and perfect health and long life and whatever it is that you envision happiness as, I'm offering you that. Okay? You can have 80 years of, of, of worldly bliss. Okay? Here's, the, here's the catch. You have to do something wicked to get it. Maybe you have to, I don't know, crucify somebody. You, know? okay? you have to do some evil act to get it. And would you take that? Would you do that? No consequences. You have to do some evil act. And I think that begins to reveal, like, oh, actually, I actually kind of want to do that. There's something evil inside of me that's like, I want this, this, these worldly things. And I think uh, the choice is harder than it should be, and, and that's because I think, like Pilate, we are worldly. Um, okay, Texas history time, by way of illustration. Okay? Texas history time. In, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, there's, this, there's this, this company. Okay? The company is called Enron. 
And Enron's like the golden child of the Texas energy sector. Um, they seemingly can do no wrong. Money falls from the, you know, no one knows how they're making money. They're just, so, they're just so great. And they were called like the smartest guys in the room with the name of a book by Enron. Uh, it's this glitzy, money-making, financially complex, really advanced company. And in September of 2000, um, their, their stock is trading at about $90 a share. And then uh, t- the Texas Journal, which is like a regional subsidiary of the Wall Street Journal, like no one, you know, it's not like, it's not a big thing, um, is, is publishes an article about unorthodox accounting practices in the energy sector. And this guy, this, 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 uh, this um, investor in New York uh, named Jim Chanos re- happens to just read this article. And he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go look at Enron's financial statements. He starts pouring through them. And he starts seeing really weird stuff that doesn't make any sense to him. And so he calls up a woman named Bethany McLean, who's a writer for Forbes, and says, hey, uh, you should check out these, K- these K-10s that Enron has filed. They don't make any sense. And so she starts looking at them, and she's like, her skepticism, you know, she writes an article expressing her skepticism about Enron. Like, the cash flows don't make any sense. They're really erratic. The debt load is crazy. Like, I don't understand how this company's making money. Um, but Enron leadership amidst all this is very brash. They're, they're sort of like, they're like, oh yeah, if you don't understand, you didn't take the time to read, understand how our business model works and you're an unethical reporter. Or like someone would be like, hey, what's going on here on an investor call? And they'd be like, they'd like start calling them names. Or they would imply like, hey, if you don't understand our business model because you're stupid. Right, everyone, all the smart people understand that Enron's a great business and only stupid people don't. Um, and, you know, but then scrutiny of Enron begins to mount. Over the, over the next f- few months, and it's revealed that they're making, they have to amend some financial statements, whatever, they're making less than they thought they, they claimed they were, they owe a lot more than they thought they did, and it's basically much worse than anyone realized. And in a wave of accounting scandals over the next few months, um, the company collapses, and the, the share price goes from $90 a share to $0 a share, right, in like, and uh, in, 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 in the span of 18 months. Okay, so that's, I think this is, Enron's sort of the way the promises of the world work. Okay, it's very glitzy, it's very brash, it's very promising. Hey, we're the, we're the smartest guys in, in the room. Just do what we say, you'll have success, you'll have family, you'll have money, whatever. Um, and if you don't see the value of the world, well, that's, that's your problem because you're stupid, you know? Like, uh, and, but the, pro- the problem with the promises of the world is that they're empty, and we know they're empty. Um, because if the world is right, that this world is all there is, right? If there's no meaning beyond the pale of death, then there's no meaning on this side of the pale of death either, right? There's no meaning to life, that all these promises have an expiration date. We know for sure that no matter how much wealth we accumulate, no matter how great our family is, no matter how much satisfaction and great friends we'll have, eventually we are going to die. And our wealth is going to go to someone else, and our friends are going to die too, and our family is going to die, and our children's children are going to die, and everything, we, everything that we've, like, we know and we've worked so hard to accomplish and has brought us so much satisfaction is just going to be like, it's just like chaff in the wind, okay? And yet we, we, we chase after the world like we're loading up on Enron stock. We know the value is going to zero. We know the accounting of the world makes no sense. We know that uh, there, there can't be any long-term value here. And no matter how you slice it, no matter how you work it, the stock is worthless. And yet we just keep like doubling down and buying more Enron stock in the world. Um, and so I think the application here is we see with Pilate is like stop loading up on this worthless stock. Um, invest, instead, invest your time and your energy and your priorities and your hope, most importantly your hope, in the kingdom of God. Where, the, where, the, you, know, where, where you can store up for yourself treasure that, that, that the thief can't steal. Um, 
and the moth can't destroy. Uh, and, you know, this is just a little, little tidbit that I think is, is helpful from Psalm 103. We don't have to turn there. But it's just, you know, you see this pattern all over Scripture. As for man, that's us, his, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and is gone, and its place it knows no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to, on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his commandments. That's the world. The world is like a beautiful flower. It's pretty. It's beautiful in its own way, and yet it's fading away. Okay, okay. portrait number three. So we have portrait number one, the cunning of the leaders. Two, the cowardice of Pilate. Portrait number three, the callousness of the crowds. The crowds are callous, which just means like indifferent. Like they don't care. Um, and the, they're basically indifferent to Jesus and they lack a really strong conviction. And so it's easily to, easy to manipulate them and to sway them as to what to happen. So they're basically, this is, okay, they're basically indifferent to Jesus. So this is not, in some, this is not entirely the same crowd that greeted him a week before. So a week before he comes in and everyone's like, ah, Hosanna in the highest, praise the King of David. Uh, the, uh, you know, whatever. But those are mostly a lot of, probably a lot of his disciples in that crowd on Palm Sunday. And uh, by now, you know, well, it's just kind of like, it's probably not entirely the same. We know it's not entirely different because in ch- chapter 14, the whole point of this situation is they can't arrest Jesus during the feast because the people in Jerusalem, like the crowds in Jerusalem, won't have it. There'll be a riot, and so that's why they're plotting this whole thing of like, we take him by night, and then we try him, and then we, you know. So the, he does have some support among the people, and they're trying to avoid an uproar. So, but what's happening here is it's all happening very early in the morning. It's all happening before, about, probably before 9 a.m. Um, his disciples and all of his core people are in hiding, and the, the, the leaders are probably stacking the crowd with their supporters or with, you know, just rabble that they can easily manipulate into doing what they want. And, and, and in fact, because we know that they celebrated the Passover the, the night before, um, there's, you know, uh, that, that probably some people are already leaving. Jerusalem gets packed up on the Passover, and then as soon as the Passover is gone, all the people go back to the countryside, leaving the, the more well-educated urban uh, uh, um, uh, citizens of Jerusalem, who I think are not as keen on Ju- as Jesus as like the Galileans are, for example. And so, uh, you know, it, but also it, Jesus has begun to lose some of his luster, okay? That, that he's sort of disappointed their hopes. They put a lot of hopes in this guy. They're saying, hey, blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. This guy, hey, he's the Messiah, which just means king, and the Messiah is supposed to deliver us from our enemies, like just like David delivered us from the Philistines, so also Jesus will deliver us from the Romans. And he, they want this sort of powerful warrior king who's going to deliver them, and he becomes a vessel for all, sort of like a Rorschach test, of all their hopes and political aspirations. And then he sort of lets himself be taken without a fight. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of like a Milli Vanilli moment. For those of you who know Milli Vanilli, like there's fan band in the 90s, and they're like all the hip rage or whatever, and it turns out they're just lip syncing the whole time right? It's like this very disillusioning thing. It's kind of, for them, it probably feels like Jesus is milli vanilli. He's just been lip-syncing. He's been, he's like, he can't put up a fight against the Romans. Here he is. He's a weak loser. He's been caught, he's been caught by Pilate, you know. Yeah, he can't save us. And so the, I, think, I think because of these two things, the, the general the disinterest, but also the disillusionment, they're easily swayed by the leaders. And so the chief priests are playing right into this. They're like, hey, uh, they're stirring up the crowd. We see that in verse 11. Uh, where is that? Verse 11. 
um, the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release from them Barabbas instead. So they're, they're, they're playing into their agitations and they're hoping to achieve their own goals. And they're saying like, oh yeah. They're really playing, John, John tells us, they're really playing out this, this, this like angle that this guy claimed to be the son of God. You know, and you're like, yeah, of course, duh. Jesus is the son of God. You know that, I know that. But um, to them, it's sort of absurd because God wouldn't allow himself to be treated this way, right? God is our rock and our refuge. We know that from the scriptures. And Jesus, here he is captive and beaten and humiliated and he's sort of at Pilate's mercy. And Jesus is this particular, this Jesus, right? This Messiah is an insult to everything that they thought they believed about what the Messiah, who the Messiah was and what he came to do. That he's sort of, he's like a stumbling block. He's something you trip over. Um, to them, Barabbas, who's the other character in the story, is a more believable leader. Barabbas' MO is pretty straightforward. He uses worldly power to achieve worldly goals. Right? He even killed a man in a rebellion. Right? So Barabbas is like tracks. Barabbas was like a David kind of guy. Um, and so when the choice is given to them between, hey, do you want to choose Jesus or do you want to choose Barabbas? Um, they, it's pretty obvious for them. They, just, they choose Barabbas. And it's not just that they're choosing Barabbas over Jesus. Like, ah, Jesus is a nice guy, but I really like this Barabbas character. No, they're, they're, you look at verse tw- uh, 12. Um, Pilate again said to them, okay, well, fine, you chose Barabbas. What shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out to him, crucify him. And Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So they're not just, they're actively rejecting Jesus. Um, and, 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 and in fact, Luke tells us that Pilate is trying to get them, he's like, yeah, I'm going to release Jesus anyway. And they're like, no, if you release him, you know, then we're not going to let you do that. There's going to be a big riot and, you know, whatever. You're not a friend of Caesar. And so in short, what happens here is that God turns out to be someone different than they expected and they reject him for it. Okay? So they want, we want power and authority. They want, we want deliverance and vengeance Right? They don't want this sentimental muck about, like, my kingdom is not of this world. They don't want to be told, like, hey, whoever would be first must be last and, and be a slave to all. They want results. Right? We, want, we want political results. That's very understandable. And I think we should see ourselves in these crowds. That we want those same things. That we're so quick. And the way you know that is that we're really quick to fall for false gospels. Okay, Gospels that promise us that the purpose of the Christian religion is for God to give us all of our worldly desires. Right? Now, so there's different forms of false gospels. You know, the most obvious and falsest of the false gospels is, is this claim that if I just serve God, then he'll make me healthy, wealthy, and wise. Right? It's sort of like the gospel of personal prosperity. Um, and that's true. Like, hey, but it's, it's, not, it's, it's not true in the sense that you think it's true. Right? God might not give you health. If you're doing it right, he probably won't give you wealth. Um, and the, with the, God, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. So if we're chasing after Jesus, because we want to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, man, are we going down, down the wrong trail. Okay? Or maybe the, the gospel of personal prosperity or the gospel of the false gospel looks really more like, hey, God will, God will make the world a better place. And he'll use, it, he'll, use the, he'll use the Christian religion to overcome evil and establish justice. And that's true. For sure, God will do those things, right? Both in the here and now, but also uh, with the final return of Christ, right? All justice will be vindicated and all evil will be destroyed. But the, in fact, the scriptures promise us that things are going to get much worse before they get better. You know, you'll read like, like the Thessalonian letters, 
for example. Well, the book of Revelation. Uh, it's it's that God's plan for the church does involve joy and peace and contentment in all circumstances, but God's plan for the church also seems to involve a great deal of suffering and persecution and difficulty and evil running roughshod over the world. Um, and, and so uh, in the, my, my counsel would be don't follow the Lord Jesus because you think that he's going to make your life, your worldly life, better. Because if you do that, then you're going to be disappointed. I've got bad news for you, right? That you're going to get, we're, we're going to get sick or we're going to lose a family member or we're going to lose someone very special to us or, you know, something's going to happen that disrupts our expectations of what. And then, we're, and then here's what happens. We begin to grow resentful at God. Like, how could God allow this? Um, but God doesn't, you know, God doesn't promise us worldly success. He doesn't promise us worldly approval. He promises us the opposite. He promises us that people are going to hate us and not really like us. And, we're gonna be, you know, and, and he tells us that true happiness is found in laying down our worldly life. Uh, so that, and, 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 and to, 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 to love and serve God through loving and serving other people. And so don't fall for this gospel that says, I'm going to give you all your worldly desires. Like that's not, that's not, that's not, that's going to be very, disapp- I got, it's gonna be very disappointing because you're not going to get all your worldly desires. God will give you everything you want, but first everything you want is going to change. Okay? So that's the, the third portrait, sort of indifferent callousness of the crowds. And look at this last, this last portrait in rebellion, which is the soldiers. Okay, so the soldiers are a portrait in just cruelty. Um, they don't really care about Jesus at all. They just have a weak person in their power that they can torment for fun. Okay? Uh, so they don't care about Jesus at all. These are probably not Roman legionaries from Rome. These are probably what are called auxiliaries. And so auxiliaries are like, here's the trade-off. Uh, you're, let's say you're from, you're from Greece or you're from modern-day Turkey, okay? And you want to become a Roman citizen, which is like a really great uh, status to have. But in order to do that, you serve for 25 years, I think, 25 years, in the, uh, in the Roman military as an auxiliary. And then uh, in, and after that, you get your citizenship. And, and the thing with auxiliaries is, you, you know, they're not, Romans aren't stupid. They're not like, we're going to raise a bunch of Jewish auxiliaries and put them in Judea. No, they, wrote, they, they, they moved you somewhere else, okay? And so uh, these are probably not locals, and they're probably not Romans, meaning they're, they're, they too, their people too, are under the boot of Roman oppression. And uh, moreover, they don't really have a dog in this hunt, right? They don't care what happens to Jesus. They don't really care probably what happens to Palestine. Um, as far as they know, he's just another failed Jewish leader. And as people who are also under the boot of Roman oppression, you would think that would make them compassionate towards him. Compassionate. And instead, they are cruel. And we see their cruelty on full display starting in verse 16. So the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is to say the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. So the first thing they do is they're like, hey, let's get everybody together because we're going to have some fun. Right? It's not just the people the pilot sent off to do it. He's like, they get, they get everybody together. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. So the purple cloak is like symbolic of royalty and they give him this little like crown that's got a bunch of thorns on it. So you stick it on their head, it hurts. Right? But they're making fun of him. Right? They're making fun of him like, oh, you think you're the king of the Jews? We'll dress you up like a king. And then they, be- and, you know, and then they began to salute him, doing their little like Roman salute or whatever. Hail, king of the Jews. So in the same way they would be hailing Caesar, Ave Caesar, they're hailing Jesus, king of the Jews. But it's all mockery, right? They don't really believe this. Um, 
and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. So it's this like weird mix of, uh, it's this weird mix of cruelty and brutality and mockery. Like, oh, you're the king, King Jesus, right? And, 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 then, um, and then when they finished having their fun, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. And it's not, it's not even clear why they're doing this. They're just, I, think, I think what they're doing is that they're just rejecting him because he's weak, right? And sometimes, sometimes powerlessness makes us compassionate towards others. And sometimes well, the way powerless makes us is cruel towards others because it's a way to assert our own power. It gives us a sense of self-righteousness and belonging and authority um, and control. And uh, so that's, that's, that's the, the fourth portrait. And I think that we can see ourselves you know, in, in this portrait, okay, so probably none of us are going to be in a situation where we have the option to torture a prisoner, right? If you, if you find yourself in that situation, don't do it, okay? Scripture says, don't do that. But uh, we, we often find ourselves, you know, in situations that are, that are analogous by the s- similar in kind, if different in degree. So we, we find ourselves in situations where we view someone as less than, Maybe it's someone that holds different political views from us that we think are like twisted and weird. Um, maybe it's someone that we think is mean-spirited and arrogant and needs to be put in their place. Maybe it's someone we think is weird and creepy, right? Um, and so we start putting those people down in various ways, um, either privately, like making fun of them behind their back, like how stupid this person is, ha, ha, ha. Uh, or publicly, like we're trying to humiliate them and punish them. Oh, you think you're so smart. Well, let me show you how stupid you are on Facebook. Um, and, and we do that because it makes us feel good about ourselves, right? We want to feel better than, and, and that makes us feel that we belong. Like conspiring with someone else, with a friend, to make fun of someone else, is, there's no better bonding experience, right? Um, or we just cut them out entirely. We're like, this person, this person is too weird for me to put up with. They make me uncomfortable, whatever. So I'm just going to act as if they don't exist. I'm just not going to love them. I'm not going to be mean to them. I'm just not going to love them. And this is all very natural, I think, but it's also uh, very wicked. And, and the soldiers don't realize what they're doing. And so to them, I think this is just like another day in the life of a Roman auxiliary. Hey, we're going to show some cruelty. We're going to get a mock coronation here. But the irony of this, and they don't realize it, but God realizes it, and we realize it in retrospect, is that this actually is Jesus' real coronation. It's the event at which he is crowned as king, not just of Israel, but of, of the whole world. And uh, this, is, this humiliation is the reason he came to earth. The, 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 for this purpose, I have come to this hour, to be humiliated and executed so that he can be exalted in the resurrection. And so we have our last portrait, which of course is the portrait of our Lord. And it's a portrait in charity. Okay, charity meaning unconditional, unmerited love unconditional, unmerited love. This, it, this humiliation is not just something that he endures. It is the pur- his purpose. It's the point of his entire earthly ministry. He came to be humiliated in this way and to die in this way because, he, and he does this for our sake, that the Son of God dies as a rebel so that rebels can become sons of God. Um, and so as we think about this, we can reflect that, hey, actually Jesus could put a stop to this at any moment. And it's not just that, like, 
We know from Matthew, for example, that he says in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane when they're arresting him and they're like fighting, he's like, hey, stop fighting. Okay, because I could call down 12 legions of angels, which I don't know, you know, what the conversion rate between whatever, but that's a lot of angels. That's several thousand angels. And, you know, uh, I could call them down, but that's not, that's not the point here, guys. But so it could be that. He could just deliver himself with some angels. But it's actually more than that, right? The, 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 the Christology here is, is, is even higher. Because we know from Colossians, like Paul, the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 1, 17, that all things are for him and through him and something like that. And in him, all things hold together. In him, all things hold together. So the word, the word of God, not this word of God, but you know, the logos, the word of God, uh, created the world and everything in it. The word of God sustains the world and everything in it. And the word of God keeps all of it from returning to nothingness. Apart from the Lord Jesus, we would all just, we wouldn't even decompose to our constituent atoms or subatomic particles. We would just decompose to nothing. There would be no universe. There'd be no people in the universe, right? There'd be no, um, there'd be no leaders. There'd be no pilot. There'd be no fickle crowd. There'd be no crown on his head. There'd be no reed on his back. There'd be no spit in his eye. Um, there'd be no soldiers. There'd be, there, all these things hold together in him. So the Lord Jesus is actively holding together the entire universe that is at this very moment torturing him that these are the instruments of his own humiliation and he is willing them into existence. And why does he do that? Well, the hint, I think, is in verse 7. The hint is in verse 7. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. So Barabbas is among the rebels in prison and he had committed murder in the insurrection. And the insurrection is like the, a rebellion that occurred against Rome. He's a rebel. And the hint, I think, in part, is the name Barabbas. It's a very interesting name. It actually is a portmanteau, to use Wikipedia language, of two words, right? Uh, the first word is son, Bar, like Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, Bar, and Abba, as in Abba, father. So he is the son of the father, Barabbas. And so we have two people here in this, in this gospel account. We have Barabbas, who's an actual rebel named the son of the father, and he is being delivered, or he's been declared innocent. And then we have Jesus, the king of the universe, the only begotten son of the father, declared a rebel. And so the rebel goes free because the king dies in his place. And so the why of what's going on here is that God loves us. Okay? So we know, for example, from John chapter 3, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, which is a somewhat obscure Old Testament allusion that we won't get into here, so also the Son of Man, who is Jesus, so also the Son of Man must be lifted up, meaning on the cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so we have here, we see ourselves uh, in these portraits of fallen humanity and in, in the cunning of the leaders and the cr- cowardliness of Pilate and the cruelty of the crowds, uh, the callousness of the crowds and the cruelty of the soldiers. And that should make us realize that, hey, we too, we're like these people, if not in the exact situation, at least analogously, and, and make us realize that we too need saving. Um, 
but it should also be cause for great rejoicing. And I say, why, why do I say that? Why is this cause for great rejoicing? Because the Lord Jesus didn't lay down his life to save good people. The Lord Jesus laid down his life to save evil people, people like this. The gospel is not, hey, do good things and God will love you. The gospel is, I got bad news for you, buddy. You're quite evil, but in Christ, God loves you anyway. Okay, so we see this, for example, in Romans, Romans chapter five, verse six, which says that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the holy people, no, the, the ungodly people, right? So the cunning leaders or the, or the cowardly pilot or the callous crowds or the cruel soldiers. All of us, Christ died for. Um, and, and, and then it goes on to say, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So knowing everything about how sinful we have been, about how sinful we are, and about how sinful we will be, the Son of God still laid down his life for us. And that's, that's the good news of, of the gospel, that while, that yes, we are sinners, just like the, the people we should be identifying with in this passage, um, but God knows, that, God knows that, and he loves us anyway. And God in his love offers up the solution to our predicament which is that anyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus, anyone who trusts in the Son of God, will be declared righteous. So, you know, think about the worst thing you've ever done, the worst thing you ever will do. It's probably not as bad as crucifying the Son of God. Okay? I guarantee you it's not as bad as crucifying the Son of God. And yet, even that is forgiven. Even that is, 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 even, even that, we can be declared righteous because God so loved the world that he offered up his son, Jesus, in our place. The, son, the righteous son of God was handed over to die like a sinner so that sinners could become, be appointed, be adopted as the righteous sons of God. Or that the, the son of God died as a rebel so that rebels could become sons of God. Tuning in to the Austin Life Church podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.